Gun control has many victims, and Carol Bown is one of them. Carol was murdered outside her New Jersey home by a violent felon who had threatened her on several occasions. She was killed by a man who the police were fully aware of back in 2015. Carol was 39 years old then and working as a hairdresser. She had gotten a restraining order against her former boyfriend and had even installed security cameras and an alarm system. But she knew these measures wouldn't be enough to stop a violent attack. So she began the very long and complicated process for purchasing a firearm in New Jersey. Carol applied for a permit to purchase a handgun on April 21st. Sadly, she was still waiting for permission to purchase her weapon on June 3rd, the day that her former boyfriend showed up at her home and viciously stabbed her to death. State law requires that residents be issued their firearms purchaser ID card within 30 days, but gun owners say that delays of up to six or even nine months are common. In all, Carol waited 43 days until the man she had warned the authorities about came to her home and murdered her. This is Firing Back, a podcast from Gun Owners of America. Hello, my name is Eric Pratt, and I want to welcome you back to Firing Back. And I want to give a special shout out to first time listeners. So glad you're here with us this time. This podcast looks at issues involving gun rights and examines how these issues not only affect you, but can empower you to make the best choices in protecting yourself. I'm also here with my co-host, Remzo Martinez. Eric, it's great to be back. Really appreciate having you with me. Remzo, in the first podcast, we looked at what a difference having a gun can make and how even people who hate guns will go running to gun stores to buy one when law and order breaks down. We also saw the horror that people live through when it becomes very evident that the police can't get to them or protect them. Then we saw that there's two types of gun controllers. There's the hypocritical kind of politician who want to ban or severely regulate guns while they themselves are well protected. But there's also the ones who've become converts to the pro-gun position. There are several who have studied the issue or you might say, just have gotten mugged, and they've turned completely away from advocating gun control. And then finally, we also looked at the myths surrounding gun-free zones, how they're not effective at disarming bad guys, but how there are several examples of good guys using guns to prevent mass shootings from taking place. So, folks, in today's episode, what I kind of want Eric and I to discuss is where our rights actually come from, because obviously they don't come from the government. So what we'll be seeing is what the problems are with treating God-given rights as mere privileges granted to us by the states and the self-anointed elite and the bureaucrats. But as we'll see, these problems aren't just on the individual level, but they affect society as a whole. So Eric, let's begin with just this basic question. Where are the root of our rights? Where do they come from? And why is that an important question for people to ask as we go forward? 
Absolutely. This is a very important question. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. A few years ago, there was a theological dispute that broke out on the floor of the Arizona House of Representatives, and legislators were debating two pro-gun bills, and the hot topic was, is the right to keep and bear arms a God-given right or not? Now, let me just say, this is not an angels dancing on the head of a pin type of discussion, because the answer to that question determines where our rights come from and who determines if there are limits to those rights. The Founding Fathers made their position very clear when signing the Declaration of Independence in 1776. They said that the unalienable rights of every person are endowed by their Creator. And that's the key. They were saying that our rights come from God. That's why our founders could say that our rights are inalienable. In other words, they're incapable of being infringed. So in terms of gun rights, that would mean no waiting periods, no background checks, no gun or ammunition bans, nothing. Unfortunately, that notion of God-given rights is eroding. Um, Not too long ago, there was a debate Uh, between CNN's Chris Cuomo and uh, an Alabama Supreme Court judge who said that rights come from God. Well, Cuomo answered and said, no, they don't. They come from man. And there you have your two choices. Do rights come from God, or do we the people decide what our human rights are? So let's let's pull let's pull out our inner Bernie Sanders for a minute. If our rights come from the fifty one percent majority, then our rights may not be secure for long. Actually, right? Oh, that's exactly right. Because what happens uh, if if the majority wants to limit your freedom or speech? What happens then? Or if the majority favors slavery or segregation? If rights truly come from the will of the majority, then that's a real problem. In fact, it's a problem that we've already suffered under in this country. One of the things I want to talk about later is how gun control in this country had its origins in racism. But see, here's the thing. If our freedoms are merely doled out by the 51% majority vote or by the people in power, then the majority will often oppress the minority and deny them their rights. So during the Arizona debate, it was the Democrats who took the anti-gun position, I guess not surprisingly. Uh, A Democrat representative claimed that the right to keep and bear arms couldn't possibly be a God-given right because—now get ready for this laugh line. She said, because God didn't write the Constitution— uh, yeah, uh, J- Jimmy Fallon, look out. Your job is in jeopardy. Uh, not. <laughs> look, some might find her comments comical, but the ramifications of her views are, really are no laughing matter. If that representative is correct and our founding fathers were wrong when they said that our rights come from God, then rights are not inalienable. They're merely government privileges that can be doled out or retracted at any moment. And quite frankly, that's why Carol Bound is no longer alive today. It's because of a view that says rights are privileges from the government. And before you can exercise your rights, you have to first prove your innocence to a government official. Well, guess what? That means that people will be denied their best form of protection. That means that people will be left defenseless. 
Look, we don't do that with any other God-given rights. We don't force people to get permission before preaching a sermon or submitting a letter to the editor. But imposing these kinds of restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms means that people like Carol Bown are going to be left defenseless, and they're going to be greatly harmed. Eric, I remember a while back you debated Andrea Mitchell of MSNBC on this issue a few years back. The points you made in that debate speak to this very idea of where rights come from. Uh, Folks, let's go ahead and take a quick listen. President Obama ready to wage a political battle for his gun proposals against the gun lobby. And joining me now is Eric Pratt, Communications Director for Gun Owners of America. Mr. Pratt, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, First of all, your response to the president in his proposals, are there things that he proposed that you could support, perhaps tightening the rules on background checks? Well, we don't think that any of the things that he's proposing would have stopped what happened in Connecticut, Uh, wouldn't have stopped Adam Lanza from killing a victim and stealing those firearms to commit such an atrocity. If there is an area of agreement that we have with the president, he quoted from the Declaration of Independence saying that all men are endowed by their creator with certain certain inalienable rights. And that's a very important concept of inalienable rights, because whether it's the right to vote, right to sit behind a microphone, or uh, the right to choose uh, how I'm going to protect myself, all those rights cannot be infringed as the Second Amendment says. Well, they can be infringed, because the First Amendment is infringed. I have to obey all sorts of regulations from the FCC. There are things that we can't say in a crowded theater. So every right also carries with it responsibility. What's interesting about that, though, is we don't gag people before they go into the theater, we punish the lawbreakers. And in the same way, we would argue, punish those who abuse the right, but don't gag law-abiding citizens before they exercise their right. We shouldn't be registering them like sex offenders, like they are in New York. We shouldn't be in any way impeding them if they have not committed a crime. Eric, in that clip, you basically laid out what it means to believe in God-given rights, these natural rights. The government should in no way, and let me go ahead and repeat that, no way impede on one's ability to carry a firearm unless one has committed a violent crime that would result in their forfeiting their rights. But otherwise, gun control turns honest people into victims. Oh, that's exactly right, Remzo. I mean, take Shanine Allen, who was jailed in New Jersey for merely possessing a firearm for self-defense. What? She's a mother of two. She uh, and she's a concealed carry permit holder from Philadelphia. Shanine was brand new to the gun movement in 2013. She had gotten her concealed carry permit after being robbed twice. And she thought, mistakenly, that concealed carry permits were kind of like driver's licenses, that she could take her legally permitted weapon into any other state. But sadly, she had only begun carrying her concealed firearm for about a week when a New Jersey officer handcuffed her on that very fateful night. And actually, it was thanks to groups like Gun Owners of America that Shanine Allen is a free woman today. Uh, GOA members and activists, we deluged New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's office with petitions urging him to give Shanine a full pardon. And that he did in, in 2015. But until then, what a travesty. She was facing years upon years in jail for a victimless crime when in reality, she was the victim. That's absolutely shameful and just absolutely upsetting. And, you know, when you look at victims like Shanine Allen and Carol, I mean, what what are some other victims of gun control you can think of, Eric? Well, there are others, sadly. I mean, take Sandy Havel, a concealed carrier from New Hampshire. 
He worked at a computer company, which has branches in two states, and he was at work at the Massachusetts branch on the day after Christmas where Michael McDermott worked. Um, McDermott was upset that the IRS was garnishing his wages, so he took it out on his fellow employees. He brought several guns to work and at one point started shooting. And he had killed two people when Sandy stepped in. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Sandy Havel. He's been described as a very religious man, a widower, a father of four, an Army veteran, a firearms dealer, and a concealed carry permit holder. But unfortunately, Massachusetts did not then, and does not now, by the way, recognize New Hampshire permit holders. Well, Sandy wanted to be a law-abiding citizen, so he had left his gun behind in New Hampshire. So there he is at the offices. Uh, The shooting is taking place. Sandy locks and barricades several employees in a room, and he goes out to meet McDermott unarmed. He tries to defuse the situation and calm McDermott down, but the gunman would not be consoled. And he levels his shotgun, pulls the trigger, and Sandy became the third victim that day. And after Sandy, four more persons would die that day in that office. You know, I firmly believe that if Sandy had been armed, if there had been a national concealed carry reciprocity law in 2000, he could have prevented a mass shooting. He could have saved lives, just like uh, what what we talked about in, in the first podcast, the doctor in Darby, Pennsylvania, who stopped a mass shooting in 2014, or like the Uber driver in Chicago who stopped a potential mass shooter in 2015, or like the firefighter firefighter in 2016 who stopped a shooter in a South Carolina school and on and on and on. That That's the problem. And it it's the problem when individuals become disarmed. They can't defend themselves against evil. And that's the true nature of individuals. It's also true of societies that are disarmed. The entire citizenry can easily become victimized by those in power who say that they're looking out for their best interest. Yeah, it's a tragic thing. Governments in the 20th century alone killed 169 million people. Now, that's a figure that was compiled by R.J. Rummel, who's a professor of political science at the University of Hawaii. Just take a listen to what he says. In total, during the first 88 years of the 20th century, almost 170 million men, women, and children have been shot, beaten, tortured, knifed, burned, starved, frozen, crushed or worked to death, buried alive, drowned, hung, bombed, or killed in any other of the myriad ways governments have inflicted death on unarmed, helpless citizens and foreigners. It is is as though our species has been devastated by a modern black plague, and indeed it has, but a plague of government power not germs. You see, this is what happens when governments prevent people from protecting themselves with the best available instruments for self-defense. And Remzo, you know, years ago, uh, the Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership did a phenomenal study. They compiled a book that delved into seven major genocides in the 20th century. These were the countries of Turkey, uh, Soviet Union, China, Germany, Guatemala, Uganda, and Cambodia. All of these countries experienced genocide during the 20th century, but what's remarkable about the book is that it shows how in each country, gun control led to genocide. 
the book does an amazing job in documenting in documenting this, it reprints the gun control law for each country in the original language on one side of the page, and then puts the English translation on the other. And then the book gives you a historical account which shows how in each case, in each country, the disarmament of the people was followed by genocide. Now, the worst of these genocides was Cambodia. More people as a percentage of the population, were murdered than in any other modern-day country, way more even than Germany. Almost one-third of the population was murdered by a Marxist government known as the Khmer Rouge. I mean, of course, the, the Cambodian government engaged in gun confiscation first, right? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. The military first disarmed the people, and then they went through and slaughtered them. Um, listen to what an eyewitness said to the New Yorker magazine. This comes from their January 1994 edition. I'm going to quote from this. The first Khmer Rouge soldiers to arrive came on a truck from the forest, with other soldiers running behind them. The truck stopped in the marketplace. Mrs. Long Yang watched soldiers stride onto the porches of the houses and knock on the doors and asked the people who answered if they had any weapons. We are here now to protect you, the soldiers said, and no one has a need for a weapon anymore. People who said that they kept no weapons were forced to stand aside and allow the soldiers to look for themselves. The roundup of weapons took nine or ten days, and once the soldiers had concluded that the villagers were no longer armed, they dropped their pretense of friendliness. The soldiers said that everyone would have to leave the village for a while so that the troops could search for weapons. When the search was finished, they could return. In short, when the Khmer Rouge took charge of Cambodia, relatively few Cambodians owned firearms. Now, that's an eyewitness account of how Cambodian officials disarmed the people. And once they had no guns, that is, once the people didn't have guns anymore, the massacres began. Um, I have a historical account from an award-winning journalist and author, Paul Johnson. He wrote a tremendous book, Modern Times, A History of the World from the 1920s to the 1980s. Let me just read a couple paragraphs, a few paragraphs of the horrors that Johnson records, the terrors that were inflicted upon an unarmed people. He says, on April 17, 1975, the first killings came at 8.45 a.m., Fifteen minutes later, troops began to clear the military hospital, driving doctors, nurses, sick, and dying into the streets. An hour later, they opened fire on anyone seen in the streets to start a panic out of the city. At noon, the city's hospital was cleared. Hundreds of men, women, and children, driven at gunpoint, limped out into the midday temperatures of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Of 20,000 wounded in the city, all were in the jungle by nightfall. One man carried his son, who had just had both legs amputated. Uh, others pushed the beds of the very ill, carrying bottles of plasma and serum. Every hospital in the city was emptied. Rockets and bazookas were fired at houses where any movement was detected. There were many summary executions. The rest were told, leave immediately or we will shoot all of you. By evening, the water supply was cut off. What gave the episode its peculiar horror was the absence of any visible authority. The peasant soldiers simply killed and terrified, obeying orders, invoking the commands of the organization on high. Nothing was explained. The intellectuals who had planned it all 
never appeared. By mid-year, one million people had been scattered over the countryside and set to work to build new villages, often with their bare hands. Married couples were forbidden to have prolonged conversations together. This was known as arguing and punished by death on the second offense. As famine and epidemic developed, the old and sick and the very young, especially the orphans, were abandoned. Executions were in public, relatives being forced to watch while their brother, mother, or child was garroted or decapitated, stabbed, bludgeoned, or axed to death. Sometimes entire families were executed together. Former officials were often tortured to death or mutilated before execution. Little attempt was made to hide the killings. Bodies bodies were left to decompose or floated in scores down the rivers. In one city, a colonel had his nose and ears cut off and was then crucified to a tree, dying the third day. In the same place, a teacher called Tan Sammy, who disobeyed orders not to teach his pupils anything except soil tilling, was hanged. His own pupils, aged 8 to 10, being forced to carry out the execution and to shout unfit teacher as they did so. Johnson says the sickening list of cruelties is endless. Remzo, I wanted to read those paragraphs because I think sometimes we can become so desensitized. You know, we're he- we hear about a country that committed genocide, and that word just becomes a word to us. I mean, that's not only horrifying and tragic, but you know, it's one thing to watch a movie, Eric, and to see like an entire, you know, like in Rambo, see an entire village just get taken down. I mean, these are actual people. Like they have their own lives. They have their own dreams and ambitions. And they they matter just as much as everyone else matters. And all of that was taken away, just taken, ripped, just completely put in utter disregard in such a brutal fashion. It was horrid. and But here's the thing. It was all made possible because they were prevented from protecting themselves by their own government. It was disgusting. And that's why our founding fathers wanted to protect this precious right of self-defense. James Madison, who is, of course, known as the father of the Constitution, said in the Federalist Papers that the Constitution preserves the advantage of being armed which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation where the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. So, you know, why are these governments afraid to trust the people with arms? They're afraid because if they were to start abusing an armed people the way Cambodian officials did, then the victims would shoot back. See, tyrants aren't so bold when bullets are flying back at them. (laughs) Absolutely right. And, you know, this right of resisting tyranny— it's ultimately at the heart of our Second Amendment. Um, I might be wrong, but didn't the Supreme Court address this issue in the Heller decision back in 2008? Was oh, it that one? Ab- absolutely they did. Yeah, on pages 24 and 25 of that very famous decision, the Supreme Court said that the right to keep and bear arms, which is protected by the Second Amendment, is essential to resist tyranny. Look, our own history bears out this truth. The war for independence started as an attempt at gun control. You know, the war began on April 19th, 1775, at the battles of Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts. And victory that day, of course, went to the colonial militia, which was made up of average people, farmers, storekeepers, doctors, etc. You know, these were regular folks 
who stood up bravely, really against the premier fighting force in their day, the British Redcoats. And why were they doing this? What was happening that was so atrocious? Well, the Redcoats were trying to confiscate the guns and powder of the colonists, which was located at Concord, but they were unsuccessful. The American militia repulsed the British at Concord and prevented the regulars from accomplishing their mission to steal the guns and the powder. In fact, uh, the, the British regulars took such a beating that day from the armed colonists that the Redcoats threw their guns in a pond and fled for their lives. The route was utterly horrendous for them, and, and many found solace in the most unlikely places. There's uh, a good book called Paul Revere's Ride. David Hackett Fisher talks about this route uh, in his book. He says, Some soldiers came to an old woman known as Mother Bathrick, who was so impoverished that she was digging weeds in a vacant field for food. The terrified fugitives surrendered to Mother Bathrick, <laughs> who quickly led them to the house of the militia captain, Ephraim Frost, and she delivered her prisoners to Captain Frost, and she told them, if you ever live to get back, you tell, you tell King George that an old woman took six of his uh, grenadiers' <laughs> prisoners. Well, apparently the message did get back to England. Uh, British critics of their own government took great delight in using this story to poke fun at his majesty. And uh, they devised this little saying, if one old Yankee woman can take six grenadiers, how many soldiers will it require to conquer America? Well, apparently too many, it seems. (laughs) Because Because the British had to eventually put up the white flag. Not because we dominated them so much, although we did win some significant battles. It was more so that we just wore them down. So our our country was essentially birthed in repulsing gun control. Would you say that one of the reasons we have remained so free is because of our constitutional protections of the right to keep and bear arms? But wait, I I just remember, I think it was was either Stalin or uh, Mao Zedong that said underneath every rock and blade of grass in America, there's a firearm, something like that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. When you compare our murder rates to those in Europe, there is no comparison. Now, I know some people would probably want to stop me there and say, oh, no, you're wrong. Europe has lower murder rates. But you know what? They ignore the murders committed by governments against their own people. Taking the figures provided by R.J. Rummel, who I mentioned earlier, Europe averaged 200,000 murders per year during the 20th century. And that's if you only look at the mass murders committed by the Nazi regime. Obviously, Individual homicides, that is, you know, person against person, that would drive that figure up even higher, and it would go even higher if you include Stalin's murders in Europe. But just looking at the 200,000 per year figure, that's a murder rate that's over 10 times higher than the rate in the United States. But ask any gun owner here in America, and they will tell you that the reason we've never had a Hitler or Stalin problem is because our guns are the final defense against tyranny. In fact, if you want to see an entertaining uh, depiction of how citizens use their guns to halt government tyranny at the local level, watch the last 10 or so minutes of an American story. Uh, It's a movie that describes the Battle of Athens, Tennessee from 1946. In a nutshell, the movie's based... Uh, really on a true story where a corrupt sheriff tries to steal an election, but the townspeople use their guns to force a proper recount. 
That, that's a great example. Another film that recently came out, I think it had uh, Matthew McConaughey was the Free State of Jones, where you had these former Confederate soldiers who no lo- longer wanted to fight for the Confederacy. They uh, took over a town in Missouri and they eventually helped the Union forces. And then they actually were independent for a little bit. You know, it, ca- it comes with the name, the Free State of Jones. But you, you get the point. Go, go check that out. But going back to where our rights come from, Eric, when did these people in this country start actually viewing our gun rights as mere privileges? I mean, where, where did that begin? Because I don't think it's an absolutely recent thing. I mean, for us to go from where we were to where we are now, it's almost a complete 180 in a sense. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Remzo. I mean, it's actually been with us from the very beginning. I mean, slaves were not allowed to own weapons. That That is a mark of slavery, that you are unable to defend yourself. And even after the slaves were freed— Racist Democrats in the South tried to keep them disarmed, Uh, and that was part of what the Jim Crow laws did. They were aimed at keeping the newly freed slaves unarmed, you know, those African Americans who were now citizens. So that's one of the reasons, uh, by the way, that the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution. During debate over the 14th Amendment, Democrat Senator Thomas Hendricks of Indiana brag that colored people in his state do not enjoy the same rights as white people. So he opposed adoption of the 14th Amendment because, among other things, he said it would grant Second Amendment rights to the Negroes, the Coolies, and the Indians. Now, those were his words. You see, he wanted to keep blacks and other minorities disarmed. But guess what the answer back to him was? The senator who answered him said that is precisely what the 14th Amendment is intended to do. It was specifically intended to allow the newly freed slaves to arm themselves. Listen to what the Supreme Court said about this in 2010. This is uh, from the McDonald versus Chicago case, a very important decision. The court quoted a senator who was arguing that the 14th Amendment was needed so that the federal government could stop the states from disarming blacks. So the court is quoting a senator uh, back in the 1800s as they're debating the 14th Amendment. So the court quotes him saying, Every man should have the right to bear arms for the defense of himself and family and his homestead. And if the cabin door of the freedman is broken open and the intruder enters for purposes as vile as were known to slavery— then should a well-loaded musket be in the hand of the occupant to send the polluted wretch to another world where his wretchedness will forever remain complete. Yeah. In other words, if you break into a newly freedman's home, then he should have the right to use his gun to send you to hell. <laughs> and that's that, that's a pretty incredible debate on the floor of the Senate, not to mention, but very colorful verbiage being quoted in the U.S. Supreme Court opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were serious about the right to keep and bear arms. They were saying that blacks especially need to defend themselves because there was so much discrimination and hatred against them. Sadly, even with the 14th Amendment, the state still got around this prohibition. For, for instance— um, Southern states would pass laws which seemed to apply to everyone, but actually they weren't applied to everyone equally. Like poll taxes? Uh, Exactly. Case in point. And take this example with a gun law. Florida had a law in the late 1800s that required citizens to get registered if they wanted to carry a gun for protection. So they were making everyone get permission, and they would have argued that that seemed fair, right? 
except that there was a sinister uh, part of this law because they were really trying to stop blacks from carrying guns, not whites. And this is why we know this. When the law was challenged in court in the 1940s, one of the judges said this in his opinion, I know something of the history of this legislation, which was passed when there was a great influx of Negro laborers in this state. He said, the statute was never intended to be applied to the white population, and in practice has never been so applied. You see, that's the problem with gun control. This is the problem with forcing people to get permission from government officials before they can exercise their God-given rights. You give a bureaucrat the chance to say no, and guess what? They'll say no. They might deny you because of the color of your skin, which, of course, is what happened to Martin Luther King Jr. in 1956. He applied for a concealed carry permit, and he was just flat-out denied. I mean, was he a dangerous criminal? No. But he wasn't the type of citizen that authorities were looking to give permits to in the Deep South in 1956. So again, giving a bureaucrat the opportunity to say no means they may deny you because of your skin color or maybe because of outstanding traffic tickets. Is that an actual thing? Can they do that? Oh, absolutely. You know, on our YouTube page at Gun Owners, we have a video of an Iowa sheriff who admitted on tape that he's denied people because of unpaid traffic tickets. Uh, We've also seen people denied because they were too old. Uh, As ridiculous as that sounds, that that happened to an 80-year-old woman in Delaware. According to the media reports in her state, police superintendent Colonel Thomas McLeish said they denied a gun sale to Alvina Van Sickle because of concerns based upon her age and gender. So you hear that? I mean, she wasn't a criminal. They didn't even have any driving infractions against her. They just didn't think that an old woman should get a gun. And so they used the background check to deny a law-abiding person the right to buy a gun. Talk about the war on women. Folks, we've got to you know wrap things up again, but we'll actually talk more about the problems of background checks in our next episode. Um, it's a kind of recap today. I mean, we saw the problems that come with treating God-given rights as merely privileges to be doled out by bureaucrats, not only for individuals, but for societies as a whole. And I cannot wait to kind of go through everything with Eric next time. But hey, help us out. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and do us a great favor because we know you want to help promote our message and everything. Leave a five-star rating and review. So go on the little, if you're using an iPhone, go to the little uh, podcast app. It's a little purple icon. And then go down to the spyglass. You know, you find the podcast, find Firing Back, click subscribe. And while you're there, go ahead and leave a five-star rating and review. And while you're at it, why, you know, make it easy for yourself. Go ahead and check out Gun Owners of America on Facebook and Twitter. So that way you're in the loop for everything you need to know. So that way you're up to date constantly and you know when the next episode's coming up. So tune in next week for the newest episode of Firing Back. And don't forget, Gun Owners of America is the only no-compromise gun lobby in Washington. Stay up to date with the latest news and updates by visiting gunowners.org.